welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Katie, what's happening in Iowa today? I hear a little voice in the background. Well, right now, I'm just trying really hard not to look out the window, Arlene, just to ruin your fun. Um, Yes, the boy child is homesick. There was some puking. Um, We're at that point at, at daycare and school, you know, they hang exposure notices up on the door when there's stuff going around. And at least at daycare, and this is has nothing to do with the quality of our daycare but there's like a ream of paper hanging from the door you know stomach bug stomach bug covid colds head lice smallpox scurvy i don't know <laughs> yeah everything everything's going around yes your child is probably contagious with at least 15 things yeah just that's right if they're actually here you're lucky <laughs> yeah yeah uh, we did send the girl child this morning because the rule is basically if they're not, you know, they have to be out 24 hours post-vomiting. But at this point, you know, if we kept kids home for anything else, they would never go anywhere. Yeah, that's right. She might avoid it altogether. You never know. If they're home together, then she'll be more likely to get sick. Well, and God love them. The boy child is pretty self-sufficient and chill. You know, he's pretty... He can entertain himself. He's just in there playing his, playing his tablet. Um, the girl child, less so. She needs a lot more interaction. Right. She requires a bit more uh, attention. Yeah. No lambs yet, but some of the girls are getting kind of, getting kind of roly poly. I was doing chores the other night and asked Jim for chore instructions because I don't do them often enough, and, um. Where I imagine your chores routine is probably fairly samesies. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a lot of variation. Yeah. Ours changes, you know, based on which cows are in the barn and which cows are on the pasture and this, this, and this, you know. Um, so the the calf that was born a few weeks back now, the one I had to pull, the chore instructions were, you know, one scoop of feed and then tell the calf how good he is and tell him how he's the fastest runner in the world and he's the best, most beautiful calf you've ever seen. Aw, calf affirmation. But I watched him, and he was basically the fastest, bestest calf in the entire world ever. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, so, yeah, you're not just not just building him up. Yeah, very proud of himself. Other than that, not a whole not a whole heckin' lot. What's going on in your world, Arlene? Well, we have a, another licensed driver in the house, so that is both exciting and nerve-wracking. The uh, Our number two turned 16, and so we went... The very next day to attempt to do the written test, which is step one in getting a license here in Ontario. Um, not successful the first day, but um, came home and studied for a few more few more days and spent a bit more time looking at the actual book and some websites with some sample questions. And then he passed it on the, the second attempt. So we've had a little bit more driving. He has been doing driving already. I think I've mentioned that before. We have a driving instructor that's been working with him, but now he can go a little further afield. So we live on a dead end road and most of his practice has been on this road. And then around the corner from us, we're going to be getting some new neighbors before too long. There's a new subdivision going in, which is 
maybe exciting, maybe a little bit worrying, but I mean, I'm sure they'll all be lovely and we'll enjoy the smell of manure in the spring and fall. Um, but at least that's another place that he's been able to practice because during the day there's lots of construction vehicles around, but at night, as long as there's not too much snow, he can travel on those roads a little bit too. So yeah, now we have to figure out how to drive in town with other vehicles and things like traffic lights and stop signs. So it's a whole new adventure. And other than that excitement, things carry on on the farm. I don't think we've done anything much extra lately. Um, we're coming into my daughter's reading week, which is basically like spring break for uh, university. So she's going to be home for a week. So that's kind of exciting to be able to spend some quality time with her and fit a whole bunch of things into that week to uh, capitalize on the fact that she's home. And uh, yeah, so there's a few different things. We've got a 4-H awards night coming up and we're going to try and take a little trip away, just her and my husband and I, because the other kids don't have the same break as her anymore. So it's a big change for us. We used to be used to having everybody home for March break. And that was sometimes when we did traveling, if that was a thing that we could do in a post pre-COVID and then post-COVID, we went on a couple of trips, but now we just have to divide and conquer. So we're going to do a couple nights away with her. And then again, during March, we'll take our three boys somewhere else. So that's the excitement around here. I think we got some snow last night, but for the first time in a long time, there was snow and they did not call a snow day. So they actually had to go to school on snowy roads and they survived. I'm glad they survived. We got about an inch and a half of snow Wednesday night. Might have been the same storm you guys got, actually. Um, we've had so little snow this winter that they sent the snowplow out, despite the fact that not even the whole county even got snow. There was no snow at all in town. Um, but they sent mm -hmm. the plow out for an inch of snow, and it is... I mean, the snow's melting, so... But I suppose probably their budget is sort of one of those use it or lose it kind of things. Yeah, they haven't had much work to do yet this year, so they might as well send them out. Plus, it was a nice sunny day. I bet it was a nice day to go drive around in a big tractor. Yeah, so. that's right. So should we welcome our guest for this week? I suppose we ought to. We are excited to be talking to our first guest from New Zealand. So today we're speaking with Catherine Wright, who is joining us, like I said, from New Zealand. And I don't even know which island, so she'll have to tell us that. But Catherine, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is your intro to our listeners. So we always ask, what are you growing? So for farmers, that can be crops and livestock, but it can also be kids and businesses and all kinds of other stuff. So what are you growing? Well, I could actually cover all of those spaces. <laughs> so we're on a deer and cattle farm, which is in Tiania, which is the South Island of New Zealand. So it's way down the bottom of the South Island, about halfway between Milford Sound and Queenstown, for those who have been here before. We have um, around about 900 uh, hinds plus fawns at the moment who were born about Christmas time. They're red deer, about 25 velvet and stags. So I'm also growing um, my PhD at the moment. So I'm doing that and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I am growing two girls. One is growing and has been Canada all year and is arriving home today. And the other one is almost 16. So she's in what we call year 12 this year. So that's what I'm growing. Yeah. So I don't know that I've ever talked to anyone else who's growing deer. So I'm assuming that's for meat. Yeah. Most of our meat actually gets exported to Germany. So yeah, I'm, it, it's not overly common. Most farms here are sheep or sheep and beef dairy farms. But uh, yeah, there are still deer farmers and yeah, we're one of them. So 
Very cool. So are they exported live or they're processed in New Zealand and then shipped as carcasses? Yeah, no, they're processed about about two hours drive away from here. Right. So this is probably kind of an unfair question, but as our first guest from New Zealand, you already kind of gave us a brief idea, but can you give us kind of a general overview of what ag looks like in New Zealand, what kind of the main sectors are and what people are doing in agriculture? Yep. Um, so I had a, a pretty good idea about this, obviously, but I did have to have a chat to my husband about this so that I get it right. Um, we have had a recent change in government, which um, you may have heard about over there, probably not though. And I think that farmers are feeling a little bit more optimistic that this government will support farmers more than more than the last one did. We have really low prices for our commodities at the moment, so meat will... Um, we're not getting a lot. We just shorn our sheep and put the wool in the gut hole because it's not worth doing anything with. Um, we are, um, like I said, we used to be mostly sheep. We're actually mostly dairy cattle now, dairy farms, which is all often exported. Mostly uh, our, all of our stock are grass-fed, so, and, and that's what, what sets us apart is our clover. So most of our grass is uh, ryegrass and clover mix. On-farm inflation is about 17% at the moment, which is pretty high and not so great. We do have increasing regulations that are happening that are affecting farmers. We do not receive any government subsidy, and we have not since 1984, yet we, we, we compete on the world stage with other countries that do. So it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Agricultural exports, they are the backbone of our country, so they do make up most of our of, of our exports, so that's meat, wool, dairy, fruit and veggie, fish, wine, forestry. That is most of our of our export. Most of our uh, power is hydro, so about eighty percent of the electricity in New Zealand is powered by hydro, which is interesting. And I'm seeing a lot more of a move into agritourism, so some kind of tourism experience on farm, which has been interesting to see. So, yeah, does that give you a good snapshot of how things are here? Yeah, it does. It's interesting, too, to think about the fact that as an island country, that that agriculture is one of your main exports, because, you know, we often think that, that food is one of the harder things to, to move around the world. And yet that's something that New Zealand has been able to capitalize on. Yeah, absolutely. And our climate helps as well. We can grow all year round. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Catherine, as I mentioned before we started the interview, I did my study abroad in New Zealand and learning about the deer farms and about how the deer were captured for the farms, repatriated from the wild, however you want to put it, was really, you know, we hear about a lot of stupid stuff that Americans do, but I feel like the the deer catching might rank right up there if you can speak to that at all. We'll find out if my professor is just messing with us or not. It's so funny that you asked that, Kate. Did I write that in my bio somewhere, something about that? Was that just something that you... It's just something that stuck with me. My father is one of the pioneers of that industry. So he started hunting deer in the 60s, progressed to flying and hunting in, in his little plane, flying them out, progressed to helicopters, which, because deer were worth such a lot of money back then in the 60s now, and then it progressed to live capture. So yes, that absolutely happened. My dad would be flying and my uncle would be shooting with a net gun out. The, there'd be no door on the helicopter. And actually, there's 
there are YouTube clips about it. If you're interested, and there is one with my father. That absolutely happened. But we're talking beast deer. I remember my father saying to me, see that stag out in the paddock? That's 50 grand running around in the air. And that was a live capture stag. So it's nowhere near that now, but it was absolutely financially worth it. And that absolutely did happen. All true. <laughs> I think, too, how big are red deer? Like, what's the... We have white tails here, and I think there's a pretty substantial difference in size. Maybe, Arlene, if you want to carry on, I'll, I'll do some Googling here. But I know the, that, the, that the dead weight, like the, yeah, the dead weight is about 70 kilos, the dead weight. So is that what they call it? Like after they've been killed and whatever they do, they're gutted or, yeah. So if that gives you an idea, yeah. Sure, yeah, like, yeah, like hanging weight kind of idea. So that tells me a little bit about the fact that you were, you know, you came from a, a background of hunting and, and agriculture generally. Did you think that agriculture is where you were going to end up? And then what kind of brought you into both the agriculture and mental health space as you entered your career? It's a strange thing, isn't it? I did not see myself on a farm at all. My dad had a deer farm along with that, with, with hunting as well, and some of those were live catcher. But I went off and had a completely different career in hospitality and tourism. And, and then my youngest got to about six years old and I decided that I wanted something more. So we're talking almost 10 years ago now that I would do something that was meaningful. We're quite far, we're about two hours drive from any major town here. So it needed to be something that I could do from home that could better myself. And I too jumped into Massey, Kate. So I did a double degree through Massey via distance in psychology and sociology. Um, don't do things by halves. But it wasn't very far into that first degree that I discovered the absolute lack of research and anything on rural mental health. There was quite a bit for other countries. Um, there was I could count on one, he one hand the amount of things I could find for New Zealand. Um, but it soon became really obvious to me that where we thought our poor rural mental health problems were, were not accurate. Um, so that was something that I kind of went down a rabbit hole and just learnt more and more about, um, found out that it's our young men essentially that are at risk here. It's the young farm labourers. They are the ones that are at risk. Um, and then so ended up doing a, a, another degree after that, which was a counselling degree, which you must have here to be re a registered counsellor. Um, again, I looked into that through the assignments and, and things that I needed to do, but I turned it into a master's degree and I did um, research on, um, on uh, why young rural men tend to suffer in silence or why they, what is in the way, why do they not seek help for mental health problems. And I guess this was also spurred on by, so my daughter um, that's been in Canada, she's actually a shepherd, um, so she... Um, you know, had a big team of dogs, worked on high country stations. And although uh, she's got different things going on as a female, um, I would hear through the things that she would do that um, all of these terrible stories and, and things that people go through in this age group when they are suffering from 
mental health challenges. So I just, you know, I had to do something about it, had to be meaningful. So that's kind of what led into that. Um, I can talk more about my research soon. I, yeah, if you want to, yeah, why don't you go right into that and tell us a bit more about how you conducted your research and what you found? Yeah, okay. So I investigated 16 to 30-year-old young men in the agricultural industry. I chose those ages because you need to be 16 to leave school here. Um, and often in rural areas, um, the young men will jump into an agricultural job because it's well paid. You don't need to have experience. You learn on the job. Um, and 30 was the age that um, that I hypothesised that they would start to get prote protective factors like children, partners, um, moving into a different stage of their life. So um, I did a mixed methods design, um, which was based on uh, survey plus interviews. Um, I essentially came back with three barriers that were in the way. Um, one, and a lot of this may cross over in America and Canada too. It would be interesting to know that. I'm not sure. Um, but unsurprisingly, the first barrier was a shame barrier. So it was too hard to speak out. They, they didn't want their boss to know. Um, what came through multiple times was they didn't want their father to know um, that, they, that they felt embarrassed that their friends might know or that they were not as tough as they made themselves out to be or they were, they were fallible humans, essentially. Um, so that was the first barrier, and that is unfortunately the most difficult one to address. Um, the second barrier was uh, was practical barriers, so um, finances, um, not being able to get time off, um, not not knowing, um, or, you know, well, not not knowing. Oh, that's kind of goes into the next one. But how how bad do how bad do they have to be to seek help? Um, essentially, where's the bar? So, um, and then the third one was just knowledge. Where do I find somebody? Nobody seemed to know, and I get that in my job as well, um, that people do not know where to go to get help for their mental health. So um, those last two are more um, addressable than the shame one, and I've done, um, I've written many articles and done podcasts and things to try and get that information out there. Um, but it also came back to me that the importance of social connection, so that was unsurprising to me. Uh, Organised groups, we have a, a nationwide group here called Young Farmers, um, and that is for up to, I think they, the cut-off age is 31 maybe, that they get together and they do things together. So the importance of that, just getting together, was so important, and that's kind of feeding into my PhD as well. Um, a lot of them had problems with bosses who were um, less than kind, um, that uh, there was a lot of conflict with bosses, bosses that, that didn't try to understand the situation. Um, and from that, I'm an advocate for bosses getting some basic training on, um, on mental, uh, mental health first aid. So that is um, something that I'm kind of pushing at the moment. Um, I know that uh, your laws may be very different to this, but there were a lot of concerns around gun licensing. So um, they they have their gun license to go hunting. It gives them exercise, again, social connection, um, healthy food. Um, but if you uh, go to the go to a GP and and say that you're depressed, there is a chance that your gun license may be taken off you. So they do not go. So that is a barrier. Um, 
I have used, there's a few more, but um, we won't go on about it all day. I have used these findings to present to counsellors, psychologists and GPs about how to care for our rural populations. So it, it has turned into something that's been usable, helpful. Um, it's actually meant something. So it's a really great feeling. And I've won two major awards for that research as well. So it's a pretty good feeling. So Catherine, this has led to several questions for me. Um, first, have you seen an improvement in access of care with um, seeing more telehealth post-pandemic, or is that, how is that going over there? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I think that's the one thing that we can actually thank COVID for. Um, as soon as we went into lockdown, um, and we went into lockdown really early um, and lockdown for nine weeks, um, we, all councillors essentially, had to switch to online. We had to do it. I didn't think before that that it would have been something that I would have really liked I would have just went no I don't need to do that I'm just going to do um, in person um, but actually it's better than I ever gave it credit for it's it's got so many great things about it yes it's a screen but the but the client can be in their own home in a relaxed environment they only need to take that hour they don't need to travel all day into a town and and do that but when whenever I talk about this to um, well, a lot of rural people, not just young men, it's not generally known that this is a thing. Um, so I think we're all really quick to correct people, but it's such an accessible, fantastic tool for isolated rural people, and it's getting there. It's getting more and more, and I'm really pleased about that. Well, as as someone who sees a telehealth provider for mental health care, the ability to to see a specialist for something, um, you know, for a lot of mental health specialties in our area, it's a four hour drive each way. If you can get an appointment, you know, if you can pay for it, if 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 if, but at least the not having to take a full day off to drive somewhere. You know, and even just seeing my regular therapist, she's 40 minutes away, you know, so that's two hours of my day that's not being taken out if I can just see her from my desk where I'm already sitting. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've talked to other other people in in that, like you, who have experience in agriculture and so many farmers and rural people say, I don't want to talk to a therapist who doesn't understand my work. Bingo. If they're going to tell me I need to take a week, take a weekend off and that's not possible for me or sell my cows or, you know, they, people in rural areas, they want to talk to people who understand their lifestyle and, and can empathize and speak their language. And that's, that's not that easy for maybe the person who's in the closest town, but it could be someone yeah. who's hours away, but actually has more in common with you than the person who's mm. nearby. You're absolutely right. Um, and that was one of the, the biggest points that I've been really careful to get across to other practitioners. So I have done a couple of professional development sessions on this. Learn the farming year. I can't even say this loud enough. Learn the farming year. Learn what's going on and what pressures your clients are facing. Understand that this is their life. It's not just their nine-to-five workplace. It's where they live and, and breathe and it's the Farming is the context of their life, and yep, you're so right. 
yeah. But as as re- in regards to specialists, Kate, yeah, we have a very um, similar situation. It's really difficult to get in to see psychiatrists, psychologists. You could be waiting. And we do have a pretty good public health system here. It is free. Um, there are waits, though. You could be waiting a really long time, months and months and months. So that's always a challenge. And, yeah, because of that, I think counsellors or similar are taking higher needs cases simply because you're at there's no one else basically so you talked about Mm. the fact that you're working on your phd now so are you developing the research you've done before and expanding on that or are you looking at a different different aspect um slightly different so there were things in my masters that have um piqued this interest but also being on a farm and um and working with rural people um so social connection and so that did come up um as being something that protects good mental health and that's unsurprising to me um how important these uh these small groups are in rural towns so I'm looking across the board at all rural people um but it's how social connection improves mental well-being um so it will be um out to prove that these groups helps help people, which will be able to be used in funding applications and potential more social services coming to town. But on the flip side of that, and this is also something that really important that's happening in New Zealand, is that a lot of our sheep and beef farms are being bought up for forestry right now. So these are mostly international companies that are buying land and planting out in trees for carbon credits. Um, which it's very controversial. It's happening really quickly, scarily quickly, actually. But what that is doing is that it's decimating our towns and our communities. So if it keeps going at the rate that it's going, we will start to see, well, we already are in places, a population decline. And with that population decline comes a a lack of social connection, which affects people and their mental health, and that's what, what that's what it's on. That's the very long answer, but does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I didn't realize that mm-hmm. it was happening on that kind of a of a scale. The 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 forestry, you know, planting and those kinds of things. So then I'm assuming that the people of of all generations are then having to move off, you know, family land or or properties where they have. Yeah. have been and going other places yeah and so much history and tradition goes with that and once it's in forestry it's it's probably never going to be turned back like oh it's absolutely devastating to watch but I just want to be really careful to say that it's not the fault of the farmers so they are selling out of necessity maybe their farm's been on the market a long time maybe they are suffering from physical health problems um, they're getting older, um, a forestry company comes along and they are offering more money than another farmer would offer, of course they're going to take it. I'm not saying that at all. It needs to be a policy change at government level. It needs to be stopped from being converted. That's where it needs to be. Um, and if a, even if a farmer did stand up and say, no, I'm not selling to you, you're going to turn it into forestry, they're just going to go and buy another one. So it's not going to solve the problem. It needs to be at government level, and I, it's a lofty goal, but I'm hoping that this might change something. Yeah, it's hard, right? When we 
so much of the public policy now seems to be around what's best for the environment, but what's best for the environment is not not always what on the surface, you know, sustainability isn't just about, you know, what creates the least greenhouse gas, right? You know, sustainability has to be about communities and and people being able to make a living and the environment too, but we can we can have viable agricultural communities that are also good for the environment. It might not look the same as a bunch of trees, but but we're all we're also doing important things for the world. I think that's a really good point, Arlene, because it's it's a lot harder to argue against planting trees than if they were buying it to, you know, put a, a coal-fired power plant or something on. Is easier to say no to than we're gonna plant a shitload of trees, you know, and to be like, no, you're not. Nope, I'm keeping this. No trees for you. Yeah. But even the trees, I mean, they're pine trees. They're, uh, it's questionable about, I mean, I'm not environment, an environmental ex- expert at all, but um, we had, we've had, we had a terrible cyclone in New Zealand about a year ago, and a lot of places were wiped out because of forestry slash that had built up and just came booming down the hill and just decimated communities. So that was pretty bad. Um, silt build-up, uh, it's a monocrop um Nothing grows under pine trees, you may have noticed. Um, it's not all as it seems, whereas if it were native trees and bush, that's a whole other story. But they're not counted as sequestering carbon as well as pine trees, so they're not included, unfortunately. Um, it's very political. and Right, yeah, so it really is just like any other crop. They're just putting all of the same, the same thing in. And not benefiting our communities or our country, so... Catherine, does your reach, how does your research look about whether, to come back to the, the young men that you're researching, what differences do you see between young men who are working with their own families or for themselves versus for outside employers? Um, I did not single that data out, sorry. Um, but I'm going to have a guess because I also work with this population. Um, I see so much conflict with the younger generation trying to work with the older generation on farm. Normally that comes in as succession problems. Um, so uh, if you know what I mean by that, as a family farm, that the next generation is taking it over. But but funnily enough, it's never the older generation that comes in to see me. It's always the always the generation below. So that tells you something, right? Um, that's, that would be my guess, is that it's very difficult to work in an environment that where there are differences of opinion but and you're grow, I mean you're growing things together, you're in business together, but you are also family members and that creates conflict. So we've been t- lucky enough to talk to a few different mental health professionals and we wanted to make sure that we were covering kind of a different different aspect of mental health and using your expertise too. And Katie and I have been talking previously about wanting to talk to someone about the topic of grief. So It's not the most fun, but even what you just said, you know, when we're talking about grief, we're not just talking about death, but it can be other kinds of loss. And sometimes that's loss of relationships. Sometimes it can be the loss of a farm because we know that that can be a really painful process and people can grieve over that loss of property, things that are behind us or, you know, like things that we're we're not going to get back. Um, So one thing I was wondering about is, I think a lot of us have heard that, you know, the stages of grief idea that there are these stages that we all go through. And I don't know if it feels like then when you hit the end, then you're good to go. Right. Kind of thing. So so 
are the stages of grief actually like a real thing? Or is that more of one of those things that we tell ourselves and it's a mental health myth that makes us feel better that we can, if we check things, thing, these things off, then we'll mm-hmm. be done and grief's over. Yeah, really good question. Um, and I think that as humans, we try to make sense of things where we can. We try to fit our experiences into templates or um, to translate it in ways that seem to make sense to us because something like grief is, there is no limit. There is no um, time frame. There's nothing into and to see that, oh, yeah, those are the stages I feel like I know now. Um, this uh, These stages of grief that you're talking about are, as, as you probably know, uh, developed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross from 1969, but they were actually created to help terminally ill people make sense of their experience. But over time, this has been translated into what we go through when we when we are in grief, so when we've lost a person. Um, it, having said that, there are some helpful parts there. So um, yes, we may feel all of those things. And if you and if you are feeling those things and you see it there and you think, okay, well, that's helpful, I feel like I'm normal, then that's I'm more interested in helpful than right or wrong. And, and you may feel that way. Um, I do wish that there were two extra stages in there, and I wish that we could put adaptation and continuation in there as well. Um, and um, I'll talk a wee bit more about that in a minute. Um, but one thing that I will say about those stages of grief, and if that's making sense to you, they are absolutely going to appear in any order. That is that that is a suggested order that makes sense to us, but you could be stuck on one. You could go back to the first one. You could go to the end one. You could come around and go back through them again. Um, you may not feel all of them. It it may it's it's I guess a, a cookie cutter explanation for grief, but you must make it work for you if that's what you are. Uh, looking at I guess does that make sense yeah can you remind us what the stages are I know I've heard them all before but I can't think of all of them off the top of my head so denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance Um, and then yeah I wish that we could then add adaptation and then continuation um, because it's something that will stay with you and and why would you want to make that go away that that feeling that you've loved somebody and or something um, there's always going to be a part of you that will take that with you um, because that means you love them. And to have none, uh, is, how helpful is that? I'm not, I'm not sure that it is helpful. I think, Catherine, one thing I've been working through a lot myself is the difference between being cured and being healed and the grief that comes with processing something horrible that happened even if it ends okay, that there's still everything in the middle that you have to process, even if you don't die, or, you know, even if the final outcome is good, that there's still all of that uncertainty and fear in the middle, and how you can even think that you've processed all of your grief, and it can still sneak up on you in pretty random places and times and it's um I had a a moment this week where some of my own past whatever kind of caught me between the eyes like a two by four and it was kind of it was something I would have said I was over but it it can definitely sneak up and so I'm you know I'm wondering how we can 
normalize the expectation that it's not a, you know, I did the five steps and now I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everything's great. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, again, I think that um, being reminded of, of the person that you lost um, and there, I'm, I'm a huge believer in taking what's helpful out of that. Um, and, and I, I know that those reminders will come and hit you full force and they will be birthdays, death anniversary, Christmas time, um, if it's a parent, Mother's Day, Father's Day, um, that I, I don't think that we can escape any of that. But I question, why would you want to? Because it reminds you of the person that you loved and that you lost. It gives you an opportunity to think about them. Um, I guess it's how we think about it that perhaps we need to look at rather than stopping stopping all of the thoughts about it, if that makes sense. Because it's very difficult to control what you think, as you probably have noticed. Can you talk to us a little bit about how we can help younger kids when we're talking about grief? Um, and I was also curious about if there are ways that, you know, the experiences that we have on farms, like the loss of a livestock or a pet or things like that, can be ways that we can kind of teach lessons around grief and mourning a loss not that you can really prepare, but at least to 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 make it normal that we can have those conversations and and accept their feelings about those things, so that when maybe those other griefs come along, that then they're also kind of prepared. I mean, can you be prepared? I don't know. Anyway, what do we do about little kids? Okay, so I work at a primary school one day a week. Um, so I work with five to eleven year olds um, one day a week, and and grief is something that's irregular in my room. Um, so yeah. Um, absolutely, and I've got that written in my notes actually, that as farm children, you are aware of the cycle of life life and death. Um, I'm not saying that it, that they become indifferent about it, but what I'm saying is that um, it becomes more, more obvious and I guess normalised to them. So yes, you can absolutely use that as, as a tool for explaining that about death um, because they will be familiar with it in a way that city children will not. Um, so that's that's actually a pretty helpful thing. Um, grief can show up in children in ways that don't appear to be grief at first. Um, I see a lot of anger, um, confusion. I see a lot of uh, separation, anxiety that they, they don't want to be dropped off anywhere. They don't want mum or dad to go um, because, you know, when... when Granddad went away, he didn't come back. When he went to the hospital, he didn't come back. So then maybe you won't come back either, Mum, like that. And that's that's a normal way to think. I think that's really normal. Um, it can also come out as conflict, um, physical symptoms as well. So sore tummies, um, you know, sweaty palms, other kind of anxiety-based symptoms that can show up as that. They might not be able to explain it. Um, I can't stress this enough. And I, and I did actually write some notes too on this, but all of the things that I say here that help children will help adults too. This is across the board. Obviously, it's going to change how you talk to that child. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I, I want any listeners to take away is that when you have lost a person, the most important thing is to keep that memory alive. Tell the stories. Look at the photos. Have the photos up encourage telling the, the funny stories, the memorable times, because, yes, that loved one is, has gone, um, but you are now, and children too, the gatekeepers of the memory 
of that person. It's a really important role that we move into that. And yes, that person is gone. And the way that we we think about them has changed because they're no longer on the physical plane. Um, but there is always a connection with memories, with love that cannot be severed. Um, it's said beautifully in the children's book, The Invisible String, if anybody has, has read that book. Um, can't tell you off, offhand who wrote it, but please Google the book and any child that has, even adults love this book, but it's basically the concept that between everybody that, that loves each other, there's a string that can never be broken. It goes all the way to heaven. It goes to the person that you've lost and nothing and no one can break that string. It's really, really lovely. Um, other things I want to say is that we have a bit of a funny way of dealing with grief in the Western world, and, and I know that um, this is probably equally as applicable to America and Canada as, as New Zealand. We're getting better, but the societal message is move on. You know, when are you getting back to it? When are you, when are you going to get over this? And you've said goodbye to them. Pick it up. Get back on with your life. Um, but is this helpful? I don't, I don't think so. It's, it's not helpful. Um, keeping the memory alive and talking about them is, is far more helpful, in, in my opinion, and, and from what I've seen with my clients. Um, I do have some a list of questions here that I would really love to read out, if that's okay, that are good questions to ask children in grief. Um, but you could equally ask yeah, them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, equally ask them to an adult or yourself. Okay, so... Um, so what would the person that you have lost appreciate about you today? This is something that you may have to really think about. Um, but if you were to look through the eyes of the person that you lost, what would they see about you that they really appreciated? Um, and it, it's another way to, to keep that connection, to build that connection. Um, what would it be like to then appreciate that about yourself? So turning it back inwards. What difference does it make to how you will be in your life or today? What, would, what will that change? Um, what would the person you lost want you to learn about yourself? And again, that's another really reflective question that, that a child may have to think about or you may need to reword or whatever. Um, how did the person they lost show their love to that child? What did, what did they do? How do you know that? That they loved you essentially was it a hug or just a look or some words a pet name whatever that was and how did the child show their love back to that person did they send yeah, letters did they what did they do to show their love to their grandparent or whoever is lost what did the person you lost see through her loving eyes his or her loving eyes so what were they looking at um, in the world essentially what was their point of view on things um, that might be an older children one. Um, and how did they know these things? So what brought them to those conclusions? Last one is what words of encouragement would they offer you today? So what if you could, again, step into their eyes, step into their shoes, what would they say to you? What is, what's your best guess? What's your best guess is a really great thing to say when a child says, I don't know, by the way. <laughs> Works every time. Um, so those are some questions. Um, there are activities that you could do with children that I've found to be really helpful. And again, maybe they're great with adults too. So um, a memory box is 
head and shoulders, the best thing that I've found. It can be developed over time. It can be added to over years. Um, so, and I've made them actually in sessions with my children and, and they we work on it every week and then they can take it home. So always goes a piece of string because I've always read to them the invisible string. So that um, signifies that. Um, photos, albums, um, maybe it's shells you collected together. Um, maybe it's pressed flowers that your grandmother grew in her garden. Um, something that they can that they can go to that's tactile that they can that they can feel in their hands. And the more it, it, and if something, you know, if your grandmother used goat goat's milk, so my grandmother did. So I'm I'm remember, remembering that now. Put that in there because smell, touch, sight, um, something even even a, a song on a playlist that reminds you of that person bringing you back there is really helpful. Um, again, telling the stories, sharing the memories. Mark anniversaries and birthdays, like we were talking about before, they can be triggers. But what if on the person's birthday that you lost, that you made their favourite meal and took time to talk about them? Um, what difference could that make to how you feel you have still included that family member or that loved one in your life? So powerful. Um, though, uh, that's probably the, the best that they are the best things I could suggest. Oh, a place too. Maybe you've got a garden that you can pop a seat or something, sit there and just remember, listen to their music or just to be with those memories. Really helpful. Yeah, those are some really good ideas. What are your thoughts when it comes to the slightly older kids? I mean, you've got lots of experience in the youth and young adult mental health. What about those of us who have older kids who are experiencing grief? And sometimes, you know, that can be sometimes... I have a teenager who had a friend pass away not that long ago in a car accident. You know, those those types of kind of like those those big the, kind of their first real like big experience with grief and and then and how we help them because they're maybe not not as expressive sometimes or we don't always know what they're what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um so I just want to point out that, um, yeah, and, and I have worked a lot with teens. I was a, a school guidance counsellor for a few years too. So um, that it is already, already very complicated to be a teenager in this world. So this just adds another angle of complication. So I just want to recognise that um, any of those ideas that I just suggested, um, depending on your teen, may work well. Um, if you choose to open a conversation about your teen, about anything actually, not just grief. I always tell this to parents, talk in the car, talk when you're going somewhere in the car, when they are beside you. There's no confrontational eye contact. Um, it doesn't matter if there's silence because that happens in the car. Um, may, may or may not be a bad thing, but they can't get away from you. You're, you're there together. It's like captive time together. So um, that's always a really great place um, to talk. Um, know that with teenagers, well, from about 12 years and up, and this is purely developmental and it is nothing against parents, but their friends will um, supersede parents in terms of importance for hanging around with to communicating and connecting with that their friends become extremely important about them and even more so um, if something like this happens that they would lose somebody. Um, probably the best thing for teens would be to find somebody in their circle who has also experienced a loss 
because even with adults, with anybody, that if you're talking to somebody that gets your experience, that understands what you're going through is incredibly healing. Um, and like you were just saying, Arlene, your, um, your teen lost somebody. Um, there's likely a whole circle of teens there that are all feeling the same. So even if they're not sitting talking about it, they're side by side, they are in solidarity, um, that they're at the movies or they're at a cafe or whatever, that this is going to be huge for them because they're with somebody that gets it. Um, I just want to say a little bit on social media here, and I know that it gets a bad rap, and, yep, totally, I understand there are bad things about it, but they will also get this benefit from connecting on social media as well. So whether that's messaging or doing a tribute photo or this is this is how this generation works now. Um, so it may, may be difficult for people to understand, but um, what is is and that is. So as long as it's healthy, I guess, that it's just another way um, to, yeah, um, to get through. Um, <clears throat> I just want to say a, a little bit about um, com this complicated grief. So this will go across the board. So grief is a normal human reaction to loss of something or someone that we loved. Absolutely normal. Um, but there is a, a complicated grief that, that tends to go on and, and like you are stuck for a long time and I'm talking a year, two years, three years, it goes on and it goes on. Um, it's more likely to happen uh, if the person is close to you. So for a young person, if it's a parent, um, a sibling or a best friend, it's they are potentially more at risk, especially if the death was by suicide, unexpected or accidental. Um, so it's it's a shock to the system, essentially. These can all, it can also be worsened by uh, financial problems, health problems, um, family violence, racism, uh, lack of education. They can all exasperate that. Um, and if that is happening, I would urge anybody to, uh, a GP is a great starting, a, a doctor, family doctor is a great starting place to go and find out where to go from there if you're not sure. So, um, yeah, that's uh, pretty much that. Yeah, I was... I had a question that came up when you said the word complicated. I, I was wondering too about, I want to say this the right way, when someone or something happens and you have had a complicated relationship with that person, not that you don't have love for them, but but it's it wasn't an easy relationship, so you're still grieving that person, but you know the memories are are intermingled with with the hard stuff too, right? Because not not everyone we lose. I mean, it can be easy to get into that mindset of like, you know, don't speak ill of the dead and, and you know, that then they were perfect after they pass on. But, sorry, we know that that's not true. So how, do you have any thoughts on how, how to grieve someone when, when those relationships were more complex? Yeah, and, and that is complicated. And with that, and I have heard of this before, um, but there will be, a fair amount of guilt that goes along with that. So guilt that you feel this way, there will be all kinds of emotions going through that person's mind. And it may even be normal for a split second to think good or then to be angry at them, angry at yourself, guilty at yourself for feeling all of these things. Um, what I would say to that, and for any kind of difficult emotion, because we're just trying oh, we've got to be happy, we've got to get over it, we've got to be okay all the time. But 
the fact is that we have about 74 different emotions as a human. We can't just turn them off. We can't turn one off. It's normal to feel them all. If whatever is coming up for you, my advice would be allow it. Allow it to be there. Whatever the emotion is, you can't make it go away. And if you try through drinking drugs, food, whatever, it's going to keep coming back and it's going to knock you on your ass. It's going to keep coming back um, and it's that's not healthy for anybody. Allow that. Allow those thoughts. They will rise and fall in their own time. They will come and go. Um, if you feel like you need something more um, and, and you're not ready maybe to see a professional, I would recommend journaling 100%. Um, if you don't, if you have a fear of that journal being found, there are journaling apps for phones that can be locked. Um, they research says that journaling and journaling is just what you're feeling. It's like I call it, I call it a brain vomit to my teens that I work with. Like it's just a, whatever's whatever you're feeling, you get that out, and um, it's almost as good as talking to someone because you have expressed how you feel. It does not need to make sense, um, and. That, that's probably the best thing that I could I could say for that. But it's all normal. It's all it's all okay. Mm-hmm. We have all the emotions. So, Catherine, I'd like to circle back to something you said about teenagers grieving and, you know, being with their friends and grieving in community. And several years ago now, I lost a close friend. Um, and I mean, a obviously, we're all going to die. It's going to happen. Um, B he had a cancer diagnosis that was quite advanced when they found it. And so there wasn't, there was really no time of maybe he'll get better. You know, it was a, it was a pretty, can we extend this at all? How comfortable can we make him sort of a, everybody knew what the end was going to be like. Um, But I was incredibly fortunate to get to spend the last, I don't know, three days of his life together with his wife and our friends and his family in their home, you know, sort of um, sitting vigil. And that was such an unexpectedly joyful time. You know, I mean, he was not mentally present just because of the amount of painkillers involved in keeping someone comfortable in that situation. But getting to spend that time with the people he loved and with the people that I love and getting to tell stories and tell jokes and, you know, we're Midwesterners. We eat together. We feed people like that. That is a key part of our emotional processing and how realizing how different that experience was than other deaths I've experienced where you just get a phone call, you know, and that's the whole experience is getting a phone call that someone has passed, you know, and even if you expect it, how dramatically different that was to get to experience it in real time with all of these people as opposed to showing up for a funeral a week later. Um I'm wondering how we can encourage that because a lot of people seem to feel like if we never talk about death or acknowledge that it's going to happen, that we just won't die, which seems really messed up. Um, 
<laughs> you know, I mean, I'm amazed at how many people we talk to who don't succession plan, because if you don't plan for your farm succession or you don't write a will, you won't die, which doesn't seem to work out generally. <laughs> um, you know, so just how we can... But really funny there. <laughs> yeah, to just accept grief is the price we pay for loving people. And, you know, to just... Mm-hmm. embrace it I guess mm-hmm. oh I love that yeah I love that you said that yeah and and I think we are getting better we're getting better at it so um uh you know a hundred years ago I'm not sure what what your traditions are like but um the person would have been not not seen after they died because you know they'd be in a coffin and you and you wouldn't speak about them for a while after that but now um we actually have a, a tradition here that's getting more and more popular. Um, it is a cultural tradition where the person that has died, whether or, whether it was unexpected or not, but they are brought home and can be in the home for um, up to a week that people will come and sit with the person in the, in the coffin. They'll have a special room laid out. And it's kind of like what you were saying, Kate, but in the, on the other side. So it's, it's getting... Um, comfortable and close to that person telling them the things that you didn't get a chance to it's um people are finding it quite healing um they probably would have gasped at that a hundred years ago but you know we are evolving and um but for some people death is still just a taboo topic isn't it I mean even when you look at you hear some people telling children oh he's gone away to gone away up to the sky or he's gone away um to be with Nana or we don't actually say um, granddad has died he his life has come to an end and um, you know like what we we're saying about the farm livestock that um, we have all of these euphemisms that I'm not sure are that helpful it might be might feel safer for us to say them but um, you know as well as I know kids want to hear the real truth don't they they want to know what's going on um, I think that's a societal change though that you're talking about Kate and I, I think that the more people that do it and experience the healing that you experience when you are doing that, the more it will become normal. Um, I guess it depends on the person dying as well, that they are comfortable to have that, because there, there could potentially be an element of shame there for somebody in death. They 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 are wasting away. They don't look the same. They don't want to burden their relatives, or they might not want that. So that is also something we have to think about and respect as well, um, their wishes. I know where mm. I live too, Katie, There's there seems to be more and more options for for respite care, whether that's in-home respite or or in, in respite centers. That idea of like that end-of-life care where families and friends are, are welcome, but there's still that medical aspect where there's the pain management and the, the, the healthcare professionals, but it's removed it from the hospital system. And I think that that's a really important step too, that we can we can assist people in their dying, but also not have that be just just in a hospital room where, you know, you can come between these hours and, and that's going to be it kind of thing. But but I think that, that respite services are definitely, seem to be expanding and seem to be a place where people are finding comfort and, and are, a lot of people, you know, find value and that in that. And it's, it's becoming more important to people as, as they experience it too, right? I think, Arlene, you make a great point too about removing it from the hospital because I would not have 
hung out in a hospital hallway for three days waiting for somebody to die. That seems really creepy and rude and creepy. Well, yeah, and those facilities aren't set up for those types of interactions either. That, that doesn't work for, for the system either. Well, and two, probably being a, a middle-aged Midwestern mom from an Irish-German Catholic family, part of the, and it's it's weird, but part of the most soothing part of the whole thing to me of having that experience in their home was that I could be helpful in a concrete way. You know, I was doing laundry and cleaning out the fridge and setting out meals and doing these these things that are how we show people we love them when we're Catholic Midwesterners of a certain age. And all we've really got is feeding people and cleaning up after them, um, you know, is sort of our generational expression of love. Um, so just being able to to let people into that community, you know, was was such an amazing experience. That actually kind of leads into my next question, Catherine, because I was wondering about that, you know, as as parents, mm-hmm. we often don't really get a, get much time for reflection or to stop. And as farmers, same thing, right? You know, even if you've, you might have gone to a funeral this afternoon, but you're still going to have to milk the cows when you get home or, you know, the, the animals still need to get fed or the crops still need to get planted, even though you're dealing with potentially a huge huge trauma in your life. So how do you have any thoughts on how as as parents and farmers we can and can deal with our grief and and yet still be able to do the things we need to do day to day? Yeah, it's that day-to-day function, isn't it? It, it becomes um just more of a struggle um because your your head, your mind is filled up with the person that you lost and your grief. Of course that's absolutely um understandable. At the at the higher end of that scale, I would say I'm not sure um, what you guys have got over there, but we have something called the Rural Support Trust in New Zealand, and they are um, they are in every region, and they are volunteers that when something like this happens, they will come on farm and they will milk your cows. They'll do everything. They'll do food. They'll do. Um, I get I get people referred to me through them for counselling that they fund. Um, they do all of that kind of thing at the high level. Um, if you're not quite at that level, if you do have some support. If people are offering to help you do these things, take the help, take the offer. People feel like, like you were saying before with the food cake, like people will bring casseroles because they don't know what else to do. If they are offering to milk your cows or to do something on your farm, it's because it's a way that they can feel like they've helped you um, because it's, it's harder to help emotionally than it is practically. That's why. Take the offers of help. Um, they want to feel like they have helped you. So I would say that um, if, if, that's, if that's not an option or if you're not quite at that level, um, you can do these things, but, but take your memories with you, okay? So like I said, it's really difficult to, to change or to stop what you're thinking. It's absolutely impossible. Um, but to think about the memories of that person, how much you love them, the music they listen to, all of these things, um, I see that as being helpful. It, it's your mind, your brain's way of um, keeping them in your mind because you, your brain is subconsciously going, don't forget this person. Don't don't forget them. They were important to you. Don't forget. Um, so um, there's a reason for that. It's because they mattered to you and that you loved them. So again, talk, talk it out, especially the people that knew that person. That is the most 
um, the healing thing that you could do. Um, I guess that covers kind of all the levels, I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. They they can milk cows with you. Yes, they can. Yeah, have you ever heard of the um the uh what do you call it? Like the um the the grief backpack. So you're you're carrying a bag of grief around with you. At first it's like a heavy suitcase. Um you can't do anything else because you've got this heavy suitcase and then after a while it turns into a, a hiking pack and then after that it's a handbag and and as time goes on, it's not going away, but it turns into something that you just, you pop in your pocket, you take it with you. It's not going to fully go away. It's going to be there. It's part of you. Um, but it, the light, the load will get lighter. I'm not saying that it will go away. We don't want it to, but it gets lighter after time. Catherine, I like that analogy a lot because I feel like sometimes grief feels like, you know, when you have kids and you pick up your purse and you're like, what the hell is in here? Because there's suddenly, you know, like, three action figures and a metal combine and 12 rocks in there. And I feel like grief can be a lot like that, that it, it gets lighter and lighter and lighter and you forget you're even carrying it. And then one day you're like, what the hell is wrong here? Like, what is this that I'm yeah. carrying around? Yeah. A few more rocks got thrown in. It resonates yeah. with the parents of small mm. children. I think. I would guess that what has sparked there is a memory, like a milestone or something that you smelt or a song that you heard um, a mutual friend that you saw, it will be one of those things that has sparked that. And yes, all of a sudden you it's back to a suitcase. Katie, did you have any other questions before we move on to slightly lighter topics? So Catherine, we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up to ensure that you win. Okay. So I'm guessing that a, that a county fair is the same as what we call an A&P show. So we have A&P shows all over the country um, throughout the summer. Um, uh, agricultural and pastoral show, that's what they're called. So, you know, the best of the of the stock. And um, But then there's also a section where you enter your baking and your preserves and, and all of that. Is that pretty much what you have? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like we're on track, yeah. Now, what color is your first place ribbon? Because in the U.S. it's blue. Because in the U.S. it's blue and in Canada it's red. Are you the same as us? Oh, I'd have to Google that. Um, I Actually, <laughs> I've got a funny feeling it's blue, but I have I got time to Google it? Sure. Right. Okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> sure, yeah, go ahead. We, yeah, these are, the th these are the things we need to know. Yeah, it's very important. See, I just, I didn't know a good way to ask Arlene why she seemed... So proud of all the red ribbons that they were bringing home, because in the U.S. a red ribbon is second place, which is not a bad showing at all. But she seemed real proud of, them. and they were big ribbons. Which yeah, so first uh, red is first, blue is is number two, yellow is number three, uh, green is number four, and purple is number five. Yeah, yeah. So red's number one, blue's number two, for us. There we go. See, I think this is one of those other things that Americans did differently. Like, I suspect that we all went with what the UK had. And then the Americans were like, no, we don't want to do it the same way as England. We're going to switch it up. Yeah, it could be right. That's, that's not historically based. That's just my assumption. What's weird is I feel like here purple is usually reserved for grand champion. Oh, yeah. Purple is even better than blue. We'll have to look into this. We need to know <laughs> yeah. this. We need some history here. Yes, these are cr cross-cultural things. It was an easy one to answer um, because before I went back to university, I was a professional cake decorator for nine years. So it would be a cake. So that's your category. 
<laughs> now, within cakes, what's your specialty? Like, are you really good at flowers or like, are you a fondant person or what's your, uh, what's your go-to? Yeah, so I can I can do flowers, um, and I yeah I I will use fondant, but my um, my specialty would be uh, sculpted cakes. So um, I'm just going to very quick. I know you can't listeners can't see it, but I'm um, just going to bring up one example. And when your episode comes out, we can post a picture of the cake too. Oh yeah, okay. Well, I still have a Facebook page actually. Um, <laughs> I I don't put anything on it, but people still people still look at it. So. Yeah, we can we can see the the past cakes that would have been award winning. So we'll move into our cussing and discussing segment. So as listeners know, you can call our speak pipe and leave a message, and we'll play it. Or you can send us an email, and we'll read them out for you. Katie, what do you have to cuss and or discuss this week? Well, speaking of grief, and I say this as someone who is obviously known to shoot my mouth off without thinking about how whatever I say is going to sound. I'm cussing platitudes. Just don't. Just stop talking if you're about to say, well, God has a plan for everything, or God needed another angel, or everything happens for a reason, boo. Everything happens for a reason, or, you know, God only gives special babies to special people, or, well, you're just not meant to have a baby yet. Yeah, you only get what you can handle. Whatever. (laughs) Just don't say it. Just ask people how they're doing. Or ask if there's anything you can do. Or ask how their football team's doing. I really don't care. Just if it's going to start with... Yeah, or you can say, I'm sorry. That's helpful. But yeah, don't yeah, don't tell people things that are... Uh... Or you can bring a casserole and do some laundry and shut your mouth. Or, or I don't know what to say. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what to say is also a, a very, very good thing to say. <laughs> yeah, just don't do it. Just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do those. Yeah. Kind of along the same lines as unsolicited advice, right? <laughs> not helpful. Yeah. Nope. Not at all. Catherine, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? Oh, I wrote down a whole lot of things and I thought, oh, I'll just think about on the day which one which one I am going to discuss, which I feel most strongly about. I guess cussing is about something that may be particular to New Zealand or it may not be, but the underinvestment in youth mental health. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to get, but we do have initiatives that help adults. It's usually 18 and over or even 20 over. Um, helping children at a young age um, learn about their emotions and, the, and healthy reactions to things and that all emotions are okay and um, that uh, about healthy thinking and, and things like that. If you invest in that young, imagine the huge payoff later in their life um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, a government thing. And I had a meeting with an MP here about it the other day, and I said exactly the same thing to him. So, And he's the Minister of Mental Health. So let's hope that he listened. That's that's my biggest gripe at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like the investment there will will just pay it forward for so many years to come, right? And yet that seems to be the gap. They're either too young or too old sometimes, right? Then the age out of what's okay for children we create these these lines where it's like, okay, well, and then once they're 12, they can't access those services. And once they're 16, then they're too young. You know, instead of just having services for for humans, all of a sudden we have to. Well, it, it seems like, too, you know, my kid's school is doing a lot, actually, about social skills building and emotional intelligence and that. And 
for all of what you hear adults say about, I've never used trigonometry again, or I've never had to, you know, parse out a sentence. I've never heard someone say, well, I've never needed social skills again, or, you know, I've never needed to know how to manage anger again. I'll never use that in the real world. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things I want my kids to know. You're so right. I have to say about that though, Kate, is that I was what I used to say, why, what is, point is algebra I'm never ever going to use algebra again I was never very good at maths well psychology degree guess what I needed algebra so yeah should have listened more carefully (laughs) yeah some of those things do come back around Arlene what do you have to cuss and discuss today so mine today came out of our discussion too and I think it's I mean we say it a lot but you never know what other people are carrying. I re- like I like your analogy, Catherine. I really do like that idea of you could be coming across someone who's carrying a huge backpack of grief, and we should just all give each other a little bit more grace and a bit more patience and a bit more understanding because you don't know what other people have in their hands or on their backs or in their pockets that they're that they're dealing with every day. So. Yeah, just be a little nicer to each other and and assume that other people are also having a lot under the surface that that you don't know about because probably you do too. So yeah, just be nice to each other. Add on to that and it's not all it's not all about you. So if somebody is short with you or is grumpy, it doesn't it's not all about you. You do not know what the internal experience of that other person is. So, Catherine, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today from across the world. And if people want to connect with you online, where should they find you? And see pictures of your cakes, of course. So, yes, I have an Instagram page, as you know, um, which is um, ag underscore um, mental underscore health underscore NZ. (laughs) Is that how you say it? I think so. Um, anyway, that is my Instagram page. My uh, website is just www.catherinewright, so that's K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, right.co.nz. Um, so on my website is uh, links to my research, all the articles I've written, just a bit about me. Um, yeah, on there. And yeah, that's that's how I'd, I'd love to hear any feedback from anyone. I'm all, I always answer everybody. That's great. Yes, we'll definitely include those in the show notes. When we share the episode with people, we'll make sure they know where to find you. It was great to chat with you today. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch.